Well, we've been studying the book of 1 Corinthians together, and I thought we would continue to do that today. So we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. If you would turn there with me, please, in your Bibles. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. And this morning, we're looking at five verses together. 1 Corinthians 4, verses 1 through 5. And so we'll just begin our time by looking at that text together. It says, This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. And then each one will receive his commendation from God. As we look at our text together today, we're going to be talking about, uh, in a sense, judgment and the way that we form judgment and uh, ultimately we need to come to terms with the text very soon on because um, we could apply this in a, a number of ways. And I want you to see that with me because when we start and we look at our text together, we know how, imper how, how important these pronouns are. Uh, for example, when it says, this is how one should regard us, right? And so when we see this word us, we could say, what does he mean by us? And let me just show you how this could go, okay? I say us means, well, us, of course. The all-inclusive Christian us. And so if I say us means us, then all the application would then be here, right? You, us. Or I could say us means, well, it means the apostles, right? Specifically, could mean the apostles, Servants of Christ, stewards of the mysteries of God. Uh, could mean just apostles. And if it just meant the apostles, that means there is no furthering application, but it was only an application at that time and in that place. Could go there with it. Or we could further say, well, the us means uh, something else. What might that something else be? The something else is what I believe the us is in reference to, but... I mean, just as we start, this is how one should regard us. We're already pretty deep into something here, aren't we? <laughs> what are we talking about? This is how one should regard us. Who's the one? Who's the us? And what are we talking about? It's very important that we get our bearings and that we understand so that as we journey through these just few passages together, we might be able to bring about proper application, wouldn't you say? And so that's what we're going to do together. So this is how one should regard us. Now, if you just look back with me at chapter 3 for just a second, just glance over there with your eyes, chapter 3, and we're going to look at verses 5 through 9. Now, chapter 3 comes right before chapter 4, and we are in chapter 4, so we just keep that in mind, okay? It says in verse 5, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. And he continues, okay? Who is he referencing there? 
He is referencing Apollos. He is referencing Paul himself. And he called them what? Servants. And how does chapter 4 start? This is how one should regard us. Servants of Christ. Now, I have to burst your bubble a little bit because the word servant in Greek is actually a different word. So it's not a one-for-one -one comparison. Servant, servant, same in English. It's not in Greek. So, yes, there, I think there is a comparison here. There, uh, something that, that can be made of this. Um, but as we, as we look, I, I want you to follow with me uh, through my outline today, okay? Here's what we're talking about in verses 1 and 2. We're talking about God's ministers, and I'm going to define that. And specifically, that these ministers are servants and stewards. That's what we're looking at. These ministers, whoever they are, and we're going to define that in a second. This is how they should be regarded. So this has application for themselves. The, those people then need to recognize you are a servant, you are a steward. So that would be for the person, right? But then also that's how one should regard them. So when you look at a person, you say, who is that? Well, they're a steward and a servant. That's how you should view this person and that's how this person should view themselves, right? So there's a couple different ways we can apply, but we need to understand who this is. So um, one helpful way of looking at this is looking at who the one is. Now I know, listen, this is, we're being pretty technical here right at the start. But if I just start, here's what I could do. I could just tell you what I think it means without proving it to you. And I think that's not okay. I think it's not okay for me to just say something and for you to just take it, but then to look through the text and say, and realize on your own, I don't know how he got there. And then I don't know why, how he made that application. You, you have no room for that. Okay. Because I'm going to show you how I know. I'm going to show you how this is how it must be applied because this is how we know. Okay? So that when you leave, there is no question in your mind, shouldn't be, that that is what the text said. And this is how it should be applied. And then you take that general application and you spread it out to the many, many applications that that one application brings about. Okay? That's how it works. Okay, so this is how one should regard us. Now, who's the one? Who's that? Um, well, obviously, that's speaking to the church in Corinth, but it, it's a general application, isn't it? It doesn't say this is how those people in Corinth should view us. It says this is how one, this is how anyone should view us as servants of Christ, stewards of the mysteries of God. This is how one should view it. Now, earlier, he was making reference to a field and a building, and uh, this is... Uh, back in our text, and I won't necessarily uh, go back and read it. You can go back and read it, uh, but there was a field and a building referenced, and these things were being built by certain people, okay? So there was a field and a building, and you're to consider God's workers as, uh, as servants of God, stewards of God's mysteries, and so you have the thing being built and the one building it. You with me? You have the thing being built and the one building it. So you have the workers of God who are building the thing. And then you have the thing being built. Are you with me? Yeah. I, I could easily lose you. I lose myself. Okay. It's very important though. That much I know. It's very easy to identify the thing being built. Isn't it? The thing being built is the church. We know that. So we have the field, the building, and that is the church. So... The church is to consider God's workers as servants of God and stewards of God's mysteries. 
right? Now, because even though there are workers, as he said, uh, I planted, Apollos watered, right? But in the end, how did it actually grow? How did it come to be that God gave the growth? God is the one who does it, right? But he entrusts the work of building it up to people. And how are people to understand those people that God has entrusted with this work? That they are servants and stewards, not an end in themselves. And if we saw them as an end in themselves, what might we do with those people? Put them up on a pedestal and boast about them, which is the whole issue in 1 Corinthians, right? I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, I follow Christ. I mean, how can that be, right? So this is why the illustration's here. Okay, so the question still is then, who are these workers of God? Is it just the apostles? That's a question. Because then we would have no one left to regard in this way except for the apostles back then. Because whether you knew this or not, okay, you need to know this. There are no new apostles. If that's new information to you, please write that down so that you might know. Okay? Does everyone believe that there are no new apostles? No. A lot of people don't believe there are no new apostles, specifically those of the new apostolic reformation. Okay? Uh, which is absolute. We're getting on a rabbit trail here. Don't let me do that. So that's false. There are no new apostles. Okay? Those who learn directly from Christ himself. Because you might have to ask, how is Paul an apostle? Because when did Paul become a believer? After Jesus had already been crucified and dead and raised. So how did Jesus or how did Paul learn from Jesus directly? Or did he? Yes, he did. Paul was taught by the resurrected, glorified Jesus himself. Pretty amazing stuff, right? So Jesus came back, appeared to Paul, and taught him personally, and this made Paul an apostle. That's amazing. And that Paul has now written a letter to a church, and we're reading it. That's amazing. So who are these workers? Okay, so I have to give you a little bit of church history. You ready for it? If you weren't ready, if you're sleepy Labor Day weekend, I don't know. You have to wake up for a minute. A little bit of church history because it's important. I'm going to read for you from 1 Clement. But before I do, focus on me, not the slide for a second. There's a guy named Clement, Clement of Rome, and uh, he lived about the year 35 to 99. That's a pretty relevant time period, wouldn't you say? Because it's within that time that the church in Corinth was established and that Paul was around and Paul wrote the letter to Corinth. Okay? So, Clement is one of the, what's called the apostolic fathers or also called the Anti-Nicene Fathers. These are uh, church leaders who lived in the first and second centuries who either knew or were influenced by, personally, one of the apostles, one or more of the apostles. Okay, so they had a relationship with one or more of the apostles. And they learned from them. And so they're called the uh, Apostolic Fathers. Okay, just, that's just a title that church history has given them. Okay. Uh, some of these people are Clement, there's Ignatius, Polycarp, Papias, and Quadratus. Excellent names, would you all agree? And so th these guys are the Antonicene fathers, the apostolic fathers, and Clement is one of them. Now, what's special about Clement is that he became the bishop of the church in Rome. 
and at the end of the first century. And the person who was previously the bishop of the church in Rome was Peter himself. Okay, so Clement is Peter's successor to the church in Rome. Amazing stuff, okay? What's more amazing is that uh, Clement then wrote a letter to the church in Corinth, and we have a copy of that letter. We have multiple copies, actually. Because this letter became so highly esteemed that when the New Testament and the Bible was being copied, they also, they also copied, uh, copied copies of First Clement because they found it so important. Wouldn't you say they found it important if they were copying it along with the Bible? Does it mean it is the Bible? Does it mean it is the Word of God? Or does it mean they simply found it important? And that's how we should understand it. So they found this important and uh, we have it. He wrote this at the end of the first century, somewhere around the year 96. Now that's important because Paul wrote this letter about 54 to 55. So this letter was written by Clement about 40 years after the letter we're currently reading. Okay? Okay, so as I say, if you blacked out for a second because of that information, understand this. There's a guy who was a leader of the church in Rome, which was the church, right? And uh, he was the successor of Peter. He then heard about stuff going on in Corinth and decided he needed to write a letter to them. Isn't that actually what happened with Paul? He heard about stuff going on in Corinth and he had to write a letter to them because of how crazy things have gotten. Same thing happened with Clement. I want to just read for you a couple of uh, sentences from this letter, okay, that Clement wrote to the church in Corinth. Just listen to what it says. Take up the epistle of the blessed Paul the apostle. Pause. What do you think he's talking about? 1 Corinthians. That's amazing already. We could stop right there. We could talk about that for a while. We won't, I don't think. But that's amazing in itself. What did he first write to you in the beginning of the gospel? Truly, he wrote to you in the spirit. We didn't make this stuff up recently. Okay, some people want to say we did. We did not make up this idea that the New Testament scriptures were inspired and that in fact, 1 Corinthians was one of them. They believed this already. Okay. Truly, he wrote to you in the spirit about himself concerning Cephas and Apollos. Right? We, that's what we're reading. We're reading that same letter. Because even then you had split into factions. And yet that splitting into factions brought less sin upon you. For you are partisans of highly reputed apostles and of a man approved by them. Uh-oh, what just happened? Who is Apollos? Is he an apostle? No. And they even understood that then. What is this in reference to here? This is how one should regard us. And who is he talking about the us? Paul, Apollos, and Cephas. And so who is he referencing? He's referencing two apostles and another man. These are all the people who preached the word of God to them. They're preachers. Those given the task of delivering the word of God to the people of God are the workers of God. And how do we understand those people today? Who are those people? They are local church elders. That's who they are. So how do we understand this? The workers of God are church elders, that is ministers. Consider yourselves as servants of God and stewards of the mysteries of God. That is how church elders are to understand themselves. Now, when we're reading through this, 
we can trace a line of what's called, and I've referenced this before, something called the apostolic deposit. And what this, what this means is, is that there was a teaching of the apostles that was given and then given and then given and then given, right? The teaching of the apostles is what in Acts 2.42, they devoted themselves. Isn't that right? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, the breaking of the bread and the prayers. Isn't that what they did? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. In 2 Timothy 1.13 through 14, listen to what Paul says to Timothy. By the way, who is about to visit Corinth? Do you remember? Timothy, if you didn't remember. Timothy is about, at this time in history... Timothy is about to visit Corinth. And as I've argued before, he's going to bring all of his teaching that Paul, his mentor, has given him. And this is part of that. He says to Timothy, follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. And by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. What deposit? The teaching of the apostles that Jesus Christ gave to his messengers, right? Jesus Christ gave this message to his apostles. And now this message, this mystery of God has been entrusted to you. Guard it and faithfully give it to the people. It is not something you make up. It is not something you invent. There's nothing new. It's something that we have. It's a deposit. It's there. And now it's been given to us and we hold it and we hold it dear and we guard it and we protect it. And we say, here is what it is. Okay. I, I want to guard and protect this thing with everything that I am, but I want you to understand it. This is the task of those given over to the ministry of the word. They are servants of Christ. They are servants of God and they are stewards of God's mysteries. He further goes on to say to Timothy, you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus, that what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So do you see it happening? So do you see this message given? And it is from Christ, it is to the apostles, and then it is entrusted by other people who train them in the word. And so the message is taken, it is entrusted to others along the way, and they take what has been entrusted, they guard it, they protect it, and they give it to the people faithfully. How are you to understand a person like that? You're a servant of God, you're a steward of God. That's how you were to understand these people. Servants and stewards. Interesting words. What do those words mean? Well, servants are those who work on behalf of another, right? Stewards are those who manage things that belong to another. In other words, you are not your own and the stuff you have is not your own either. You're a vessel. That makes sense, doesn't it? I'm asking because I could go into more detail about that, but I think we understand, right? That's who these people are. Now, the mystery of God, because this is what they're holding, right? We talked about the mystery of God previously. What is the mystery of God? If you don't know, if you weren't here with us, the mystery of God is all that we find of Jesus Christ as has been revealed to us in his word, Okay? all that there is to know of Jesus Christ as revealed in his word. This is what you are stewarding. Now, here's what he says next in the word. 
So this is how one should regard us. We have defined the one. We've defined the us. We know what servants of Christ are. We know what stewards are. We know what they're stewards of. And now we're in verse 2. Moreover, it is required of these stewards that they be found faithful. Required of the steward that he be found faithful. So given that this is a significant, weighty role, a position given to a person, the one they serve and the things they steward are God's. Would you say that's pretty weighty, a pretty weighty situation? You're, who's your master? Oh, God himself is my master. So that's who you report to? Yes. That's who you serve? That's where you get your orders from? Yes. That, and the things you have that you're delivering to us, who do they belong to? Well, they belong to God. So am I going to misrepresent them? Am I going to misrepresent the things that are God's? Should I be very, very careful to not misrepresent the things that are God's? Absolutely. You need to be careful and not represent this thing that is God's to the people of God because it is required of these servants and these stewards that they be found faithful. Now it is required of all stewards that they be found faithful because if you're an unfaithful steward, what's going to happen? You don't know? What would you do with an unfaithful steward? I fire him. You better believe it. No, that's your bad, your job. Your job, you're my servant and you are to steward the things that are mine. You're not serving me. You're serving yourself and you're not stewarding what I gave you because you're misrepresenting the very thing that I gave you. Fired. You're fired. Actually, a question that we could consider here, just think, do you know of anyone who claims to be worker of God, minister of God, but serves themselves and does not represent the word properly. Has that ever happened? How is it that God allows this person to continue to remain in their position of pastor? How does that happen? Because wouldn't you think that if someone was saying, I'm a servant of God, I steward God's mysteries. Now, I'm giving you things that are absolutely a misrepresentation of what God has actually said. But yet, that person remains in their position. And in fact, many people flock to them. How does this happen? Just a question for your consideration. Think about that, okay? How could it be? Does God have plans for that? Or is that just an accident? I mean, he would do something about it if he was powerful enough, I guess. Um, what are we saying? Well, God missed that one, right? Does God miss anything? Does God have a plan B about anything? No, he only has a plan A for your life and for the lives of all people and for this entire world. He only has a plan A. You can't mess up the plans of God. Did you know that? He does all that he desires. He works all things together according to what? According to how people respond and then he'll figure things out as it goes. Or does he work all things out according to the counsel of his own will? God has a plan. Now in 1 Timothy 3, what we have are qualifications for elders. Right? You familiar with this? So these stewards to be found faithful, what does faithfulness look like for a steward of God? of God's mysteries, his servant. What does faithfulness look like? Is that a good question to ask? I think it is. Um, it's not ultimately his main point here, but it does have to do with judgment. And so we ought to consider. 
in 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7, it talks about these people. It talks about their qualifications. It talks about what it means to be faithful in a sense. Except you might say it's required of stewards that they be faithful. It doesn't say here are the qualifications to become a steward. But in this text, actually, that is exactly what it's saying. Here are the qualifications to become a steward of God, right? So in 1 Timothy 3, it says, The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to this office of overseer, he desires a noble task. And over, let me just pause right here. Something you may or may not know is that in the early church, the way these things worked themselves out originally, as we can see from church history, is that while these churches were led by a plurality of elders who had equal authority in the church, there was, in most cases, what they called a bishop and then elders. And that equaled the church elders. And the bishop really was one elder among many, but he had primary leadership and, and is, was tasked primarily with the preaching of the word. What do we call that person today in our context? A lead pastor and then there are elders. So I believe that this uh, model is seen throughout church history and is verified in scripture. Uh, I think we see that happening. Now, we, you're not going to call me bishop today because bishop carries with it different connotations in our world, right? Bishop Eric. Yeah, I don't, no thanks. I don't want that. Please don't give me that title. But if our church existed 2,000 years ago, that's the terminology, uh, except we wouldn't speak English. Okay? It says, of these people, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, he must be sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money, and he must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how is he going to care for God's church? He also must not be a recent convert, that he might not become puffed up or conceited, fall into the condemnation of the devil." Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he might not fall into disgrace, into the snare of the devil. So those are some qualifications, qualifications for uh, moving up into this uh, position, right? And so there, we see initially that a lot of these things are what? They're character qualities. These people need to have a particular character about them. And so there's already, what would you call that? We're evaluating a person, we're examining them, and then we're making a judgment, Oh, good. I'm glad you went with me on that. We're making a judgment call, right? We're examining and we're judging. Judgment, good. Is that a good judgment? Or do you throw any old person who wants to be elder up in there? I don't know anything about you. I don't know if you're qualified, but I don't care. I'm not, Christians aren't supposed to judge. So I'm not going to judge you. If you want to be an elder, be an elder. Um, is that right? Obviously, that's not right. So judgment in this sense, very good. Is there a sense in which judgment is not good? Because Paul's about to say what? Do not pronounce judgment before the time. Oh, so now we need to understand it, right? What does he mean by judgment? It's important that we do. 1 Timothy 4, that's right after 1 Timothy 3. 1 Timothy 4, Paul says to Timothy, practice these things and immerse yourself in them so that all might see your progress and keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching and persist in this. For by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. So what does Paul say to Timothy? So as you do this, as you progress, as you are a worker of God, as you are a minister of the word of God, here's a couple things that are very important. Number one, um, immerse yourself in these things, but then also keep a close watch on yourself and on your teaching. 
And as you do this, you will save both yourself and your hearers. So just uh, two things. Uh, I just want to give you these two quick points of application. I didn't want to, I didn't want to go too fast over that little section right there. Um, but what might faithfulness look like? I think we see it on display by Paul to Timothy. And what is that? Is that these workers of God, these stewards of God, two things that are required to be faithful. I think we see them right here. Is that they need to be faithful to the word of God as it is preached. That's faithfulness. And then they also need to be faithful to the word as it is exemplified in their own life. It is required of stewards that they be faithful. Required. It is requirement that these stewards of God, because who do they serve, by the way? And whose things are they handling? God's things. And is God going to let any old person do this? The answer is no. So there are not only qualifications, there are stipulations to faithfulness. So how about we summarize? Those charged with delivering the word of God are to be faithful stewards. That's how we summarize what's being said here. Those charged with delivering the word of God are to be faithful stewards. And there's a lot involved in that, isn't there? Faithful. Okay, so we've looked at God's ministers, that they are to consider themselves and others are to consider them as servants and stewards. They're to be faithful. Um, the next thing we're going to look at in verses 3 and 4 is inadequate judgment. Look at verses 3 and 4 with me. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Now, I just want you to think about this for a second, because this seems awfully haughty in a sense, doesn't it? You're looking at me and you're judging me. I don't think you know who I am. You can't judge me. I don't even judge myself. Now, in what terms of judgment is he speaking of? All terms of judgment? I think that we know the answer to that is no, because he knows Paul wrote 1 Timothy. The passages we were just looking at to show that judgment is necessary for elders. He wrote it. So he knows that a certain type of judgment is necessary for elders, right? You with me on that? So there's no way that Paul would be saying, you don't judge me. I don't judge myself. No human court can judge me. I am above judgment. And I just want you to let me say that for a second. And I want you to feel how it feels. You can't judge me. No human court can judge me. I don't judge myself. I am above judgment. How's that make you feel? I'm going to do whatever I want. I'm going to say whatever I want. No one can judge me. It's the Lord who judges me. It's a secret thing, right? What does he mean and what does he not mean? Do you think it's important maybe to investigate that? Because could this potentially be something that church leaders would read and say, see, you're questioning my judgment call here on this? Bow before me. Peasant folk, little church people, you're not a worker of God. I'm a worker of God. I'm a servant of God and you are the nothings. Now, even though I exaggerate that, has that happened throughout church history? So, 
Am I exaggerating it? This has happened. And so should we be very careful then to understand properly what's being said? I think so. There's two types of inadequate judgments here that he mentions. And the first is external judgment. That is the church in the world. Who is it who decides whether or not God's servants, God's stewards are being faithful? Because he just said what? It is required of stewards that they be faithful. Now we might say, okay, well, who determines that? Who determines whether or not a steward of God is being faithful? Is it you? Is it a human court? Is it the person themselves? Who decides that? It is the Lord who decides that. But that's where he ends. Let's just look at these two things for a second. So Paul turns to one how, might, uh, how one might be viewing him, right? Um, you know these people were judging Paul, right? This is what was happening. The people were judging Paul. And it becomes really clear. Um, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, I just want to read verses 1 through 3. Listen. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, or at least I am to you, for you are my seal of apostleship in the Lord. And this is my defense to those who would examine me. So do you hear? He's, he's having to defend himself. People are saying that Paul's not even an apostle. He's saying, I, I can't believe that's what you're saying about me. Of course I'm an apostle. Um, am I not free to do this work? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus? Because he's saying, surely you've heard about that, right? Surely you've heard about how I was a persecutor of the church and how he appeared to me on the road and he said, Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? And then I went blind and then I visited a guy and I could see again. Surely you've heard the story. Have I not seen him? And are you not my workmanship? The reason this church exists was from my work. And you're calling me not an apostle, not a worker of God? That's what he's saying. So people were judging Paul. People were examining Paul. And they were saying, you're nothing, Paul. But you know who we really like? Apollos. Apollos is wonderful. We love Apollos. Apollos, now Paul, Apollos is the guy. Apollos can really talk. He's a good speaker. He was eloquent. He was knowledgeable in the scriptures. This is what scripture has to say about Apollos. Apollos was a really good speaker. And the church was judging Paul on his lack of speaking ability. Saying, you are not a faithful steward of God because you're not a good speaker. You're not a good entertainer. You don't captivate the audience like Apollos does. So therefore you're fired. Bad steward. What Paul is saying is, you're judging with wrong judgment. Wrong. I can't tell you because this is the world I used to live in some time ago, is that I was on the job hunt for a ministry role, right? And so what did I have to do? I had to read lots of job descriptions. And it made me sick. Because it's like 15 bullet points... And one bullet point is, meets qualifications of scripture. Now, also, you need to be uh, between 35 and 55, uh, ideally. Um, 
you need to, you know, present yourself well. You need to be, you know, funny. You know, don't be so serious all the time. Um, you got to be, you get what I'm saying? All these qualifications for someone to say, now that guy's qualified. Wrong, you're wrong. Nowhere in scripture does it say that the pastor, the guy who's a servant of God, steward of the mysteries of God, who is then a local church elder, must meet worldly standards of business administration. You're wrong. That's not true. That is false. The world around you has told you that. That is not the church. That is the world business model. That's not true. The church is not a business. The church is the redeemed people of God. The church is not something you go to. The church is something that you are. Right? You agree with me, right? Did you come to church today? Yeah, you did. Actually, we say that, don't we? I know, I know. But you are the church, and we have simply gathered as the church today. Right? And as the church of God, we look to the word of God, and God has supplied the church with teachers of the word of God who are to be viewed how? As superior to you? And you pick and choose which ones you really like and you grab a hold of them and you boast about them and you make a judgment saying, this guy is faithful to God, this guy, not so much. You have judged prematurely. Wrong judgment. You don't judge me. No human court judges this. I don't even judge myself. But when I'm seeking commendation, praise, there's one. Who judges me? And it is God himself. The Lord judges me. What are we saying? Are elders above human judgment? You can't judge me. Church can't judge, you know. I'm going to do whatever I want, say whatever I want, believe whatever I want, and no judgment can come upon me. Now, we know that's not true. I, I like what Calvin said in his commentary on this section, and so I have it on the screen for you. It's very short. It said, it is the part of a good pastor to submit both his doctrine and his life for examination to the judgment of the church and that it is the sign of a good conscience not to shun the light of careful inspection. Come and look and see whatever you want to see. I'm a pretty transparent person. What you see is what you get. Um, here I am. I, uh, examine whatever you want. Ask me whatever questions you want to ask me. This... I don't perform when I preach. Now, I do get excited when I preach. But I, I, this is not a performance. This is not for the world at large. This is for you, the people of God, who God has supplied to be here. And I know what God wants me to do today. You know what God wants me to do today? To recognize who I am. Do you know who I am? I'm a servant of God and I'm a steward of his word. I'm not here to please you. I'm not here to make you laugh. I'm not here to entertain you. I'm here to be faithful to the Lord. And I trust that this is how God grows his church. I hope you trust that too. Because if, if we don't trust in that and we trust in other things, uh, we don't have much going for us, guys. Okay, I just want to let you know that. But that's, that's, that's not the stuff we trust in, is it? By the way, in chapter 5, um, you know, this whole saying is, uh, you don't know who I am, you can't judge me. If you think that's what he's saying, if you just look at chapter 5, very next chapter, Paul will begin to say some things. 
And what he begins to say is, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Uh, I didn't at all mean the sexually immoral of the world or the greedy swindlers, idolaters, since you would need to go out of the world in that case because the world's full of them. Um, but now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name brother if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. Not even to eat with a person like that. For what do I have to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside, but purge the evil from among you. What do you think? Paul's saying don't judge people? I hope in all of that, that's not what you heard. Paul is saying very much so within the household of God. We have judgment, but the thing is, is that we must judge with right judgment. We must judge according to godly standards. The Corinthians were judging with bad judgment using what? Worldly standards, weren't they? Not worldly standards for their time, right? We say, well, we don't do that. What do we care about that? Well, you judge and we judge with our own contemporary worldly standards. Here's who a pastor is, and this is what he's to look like, and this is how he's to dress, right? And all these kind of things. This is how he handles himself, and this is also what his wife is to look like. She probably plays the piano, you know, things like this. And like, it's, these are, you've made this stuff up. Now, if you want to show me in scripture how we're to evaluate a pastor, that's a different story. But we just need to recognize that we put so many things on judgment. And we're judging with wrong judgment. We are not to do that. Okay, we agree? Yeah. So, principle. The basis for judgment of a minister of God comes from God himself and not from the preferences of God's people. Right? Some of you would like for this sermon to have ended about 25 minutes ago. Okay. Um, There is no stipulation in scripture as to how long a sermon must be. So you would say, so see, just be 10 minutes and be done with it. No stipulation. It doesn't have to be long. Make it short. Right. There's no stipulation. And so if I think that in order to be faithful to the word, I need to spend an hour in this text, that's what I'm going to do. So you can judge me for that, but it's your own selfish judgment that is not a judgment from the word. You've come up with that from somewhere else. Okay? So I'm going to continue preaching. Servants of God, the workers of God, ministers of God are to be evaluated by an audience of one that is true. Yes. But you know, also, there is another part of judgment and uh, we should get to that next. Um, Paul is also saying that his own internal judgment, his self-judgment is also inadequate, isn't he? Because he's saying, now listen, I've personally, I've, I've looked at my ministry. I've, I've looked at all the things I've done, the things I've said, and I find no fault with myself. I find no holes in my ministry, Paul says. Um, I don't believe that about myself. I see many holes in my ministry. I am with fault. I'm, I'm working to not have fault. 
But what's being said here of Paul, the apostle, is that he says, I have examined my ministry and I find no fault in it. But even if I find no guilt in myself, it doesn't mean I'm acquitted. I'm not God. God judges me. Because God knows better than I do what? My own intentions. So the Corinthians are looking at Paul and saying, guilty, bad steward of God's word. Uh, Paul is looking at his, himself and saying, not guilty, but he's saying both of these judgments, inadequate. They don't do it. They don't cut it. And at the end of the day, it is God who judges me. I can't even judge myself. Because even if I say I have no faults with my ministry, I'd be fooling myself to think that I'm my own judge. Right? Be fooling myself. The standard is so high. I want you to hear that the standard is so high, it is not low. We are raising the bar. We are not lowering the bar. Right? And by we, I mean scripture already has the bar high. We're just getting ourselves up to it. Right? A very high bar set for those who would say they are servants of God and stewards of the mysteries of God. These judgments are inadequate. Why? Because it is God's judgment that matters. So before we move on to our last point here, two points of clarification and some application, okay? Number one, church leaders are not above the judgment of the congregation. Number two, the church must be careful to judge with right judgment and to be slow to bring charges against the elders of the church. Both of these are biblical principles. So before we move on, and I'm talking about judgment, I'm talking about the workers of God, you might think, what does this have to do with me? Well, number one, you're not here for yourself. Number two, this has everything to do with you. Both of those are true, however contradictory they may seem. 1 Timothy 5, verses 17 through 21. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Verse 19, do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Did you hear that? Did you know that was in scripture, first of all? Second, have you ever applied that to yourself in your own judgment? Or are you very quick to judge? You're very quick to say, this person, not a faithful steward of God. Why? Because I don't like his preaching. Okay, is it unbiblical? Uh, I don't know. It's just, you know, I just, it, you don't get a clear answer on that, right? I can speak to these things, okay? I've probably heard all the critical judgments. Now, I'll say all, and then something new will happen tomorrow or something, right? Let's say, I've heard a lot of them. A lot of them have been thrown on me over the years. I hear it. I still feel it. Because someone looks at you and says, something, you, you preach the word of God, you study it intensely because you believe in what you're called to do and you believe what the scriptures say and you deliver it to the people of God, however long that takes, and you give it to them and you say, I've given it. I've been faithful to the Lord. I have given you what was needful for you. And then someone says, what? Something very critical uh, about something that's ridiculous. It has nothing to do with anything. I said, like, were you even listening and it, and it hurts. So what does this have to do with you? That. 
Why are we so critical? What are you critical about? What are you so upset about? Right? Everybody calm down and realize who I am and who the elders of this church are in God's sight. It's that we are to be faithful to the Lord in handling his word rightly and then delivering it to you, carefully protecting it, right? And delivering the word. So it says, because this is the case and because they have particular character qualifications and because they're required of God to be found faithful and here they are in that position, you need to be real careful when you approach an elder of the church if you simply suspect something right? Every charge brought against an elder needs to be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. That's what scripture says. So if you think you feel like something may be here, and then you probably what will happen in worst case scenario is you don't actually tell that person about it. First of all, you tell other people about it. And you say, yeah, I mean, anyway, um, that was a long sermon, wasn't it? But First of all, that. Second, um, did you see or did you hear or this or that or why is that? And complaints, 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 complaints. And we know that complaining and grumbling is called what? Gungus moo. And gungus moo is gross. And complaining is gross. Just keep that in mind. Now, as, as far as it relates to elders of the church, why might it be that two or three witnesses are required? Well, this is a concept that was established long ago in, in Jewish history. You'll find it in your Old Testament. Let every charge be established on the evidence of two or three witnesses. And he's saying this applies to uh, elders of the church today. And he's saying, make sure and do this. It requires the fact that something really did happen. Rather than you saying, I feel like you, 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 had, you saw what happened to me this week. And rather than telling me about it, you just preached that sermon about it to me, didn't you? That was about me, wasn't it? A good handful of people, not in a negative way, but like in a positive way, have said, were you, I felt, were you preaching that to me? It's like, I mean, in a sense, you were one of the people here. I mean, but was I like, did I get your story or something you told me and formulate a sermon around you? No. I mean, one careful thing we have in place is that I just, we just preach as the scriptures go on. I don't, I don't just come up with what I'm going to preach about. So if we're talking about judgment of ministers and you think, why are you talking about that today? You heard about what they said. It's like, that's just where we're at in the text, okay? I just, that's why we're talking about this today. It's because that's where we're at, okay? Now, if you are being cut to the heart about it, you feel guilty about it. Oh, what's that called? Conviction, Conviction. yeah. So repent of that and move on in faithfulness, Okay. That's what you should do. Now, it also, establishing this, does so um, in that someone else agrees with you that what that person is doing is sinful. Right? Not only is someone confirming, yes, that did happen, but they're saying, yes, that did happen, and yes, we both see this as sinful. So before you go on, first of all, gossiping in the background, that shouldn't happen anyway. But before you go and you present yourself and you want to just vent about something or you want to be upset about something, you better be certain that this charge has been established by two or three witnesses that they agree with you that it is happening and they agree with you that it is sinful. Okay? This protects us, doesn't it? It protects us all. 
Hebrews 13, 17, and we'll move to our final point. I know it's Labor Day weekend. Hebrews 13, 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them. Why? For they are keeping watch over your souls. As those who will have to give an account, let them do this with joy and not with groaning, because that would be of no advantage to you. How would you make your pastor groan? I think you have a lot of ideas based on what we just said. Right? How would you make Jimmy and Sam and myself groan within us? To not understand what it is that we're doing here and to judge us with wrong judgment. Now, if you want to judge us with right judgment, we welcome that freely, as we should. Would you agree? Okay. Final thing. How many subpoints do I have to this final thing? It looks like just two, so we're almost there. Finally, we look at God's righteous judgment in verse 5. So we've looked at God's ministers. We've looked at who they are. We, looked, we saw that they are servants of God. They're stewards of God's word, and they should be found faithful. It is required of them that they be found faithful, right? And then we looked at these inadequate judgments that the people were bringing on Paul and himself, and we apply that, and we say, so we should not bring inadequate judgments upon the ministers, the workers of God, right? We shouldn't do that. So then in verse 5, he kind of, excuse me, he explains kind of the bigger idea of this whole thing about God's judgments. So look at verse 5 with me. It says, therefore, therefore is good, right? Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time. It doesn't mean judgment's not coming. It means you're not the judge and it's not time yet, right? Before the Lord comes. When does judgment come? When the Lord comes. And he will at that time bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and he will disclose what? The purposes of the heart. And then at that point, each one will receive his commendation from God. So number one, God alone gives commendation. What is commendation? Um, it is translated in our Bibles a couple of different ways. Commendation, yes. Approval and praise. It's positive. It's not condemnation. Don't confuse those words, okay? This is not about condemnation. This is about commendation, this is about praise given. And what were they doing in Corinth? Giving praise to who? To the guys they liked. Now, Paul says, listen, praise is coming for those who are faithful. But God will judge them. He will determine whether or not they have been faithful. And if he wants to praise them, then he will do so. When? When the Lord comes. And he discloses what? The things now hidden. And if they're hidden, that means that you can't see them. And God will then at that time disclose the hidden purposes of the heart because that's what it's all about. It's about what? The heart. Again, here we land. What's it all about? The heart. How does it always end up here? Because it's true. It's about the heart. Do you know there's one thing that you cannot do that only God can do? There are several things, okay? Don't get me wrong. One thing you cannot do is judge someone's intentions. What gets you in the most trouble relationally? When you judge someone's intentions. The very thing that you can't do. You don't know. 
Are you God so as to shine a light in the darkness of the things that only God can bring to light? You said, I know why you did that. Oh, really? Why? I've had people say that to me, and it's just, it's, it's almost humorous if it weren't so hurtful, right? I know why you did that. It's because, and they're very confident, right? And the they is sometimes you, just so we know. You judge things in darkness. Do we judge the things in darkness? Or who is the judge? Who's the judge of those things and the purposes of the heart? Who is that judge? God. Now, what's actually really amazing, and I want to read it for you. Um, Hebrews 4, 12, and 13. This is later on, but it just got to read it. Hebrews 4, 12 and 13. We're talking about the intentions of the heart, right? And that God alone is the one who gives commendation. Listen, what, what has God set in place? He has established the church, has he not? Who is it who grows the church? God. And then who is it who gifts his church? God. And who is it who establishes teachers in the church who are then his servants and stewards? God. And what are they stewarding? The word of God, there's a lot about God here. But what is he to judge? The purposes and intentions of your heart. Now listen, this is amazing. Hebrews 4, 12 and 13. Here's how it comes together. For the word of God is living and active. It is not dead. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. And listen to how far it goes in. Piercing to the division of the soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and what does it do? Discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Amazing. So here's what God does for his redeemed, for his people, for believers. What does he do? He gives the word of God. He gives it. He entrusts it to those who would teach it well. And as they teach the word of God well, guess what happens to the people of God? They get insight into their own dark souls. And does that feel good when that happens? No, it feels terrible. You feel miserable, right? I've had people say, I, service was okay. I mean, it was a little a bit of a downer, but I mean, it was, it was, okay. it was all right. I mean, music was okay, I, I guess, maybe, I don't know. But it's like, it was a little kind of heavy, you know, situation, a little tense, you know, for me. And listen, could it be that when the word of God is brought to you, and you start to get a glimpse at your own dark soul that you hate what you see. And that's why you didn't like it. So I don't want to be around that anymore. And you're gone. I've seen it. That's how it happens. Because what is God's word intended to do? To shine a light on the intentions of your own heart. And they're different than what you thought they were. And you start to feel ugly. But there's hope for you, isn't there? You see, the more darkness we recognize is in us, the more sin we recognize we have, what does this do? Magnify the forgiveness that you have in Jesus Christ. That's it. The more darkness you see, the more light you see in God himself. Right? The more sin you see, the more great your forgiveness. 
the more you're rejoicing, the more your hope. And so the depth of sorrow and the heights of joy are related. You keep everything right here in the middle to where, well, I don't want to say anything that's going to like upset anybody or anything. I don't have that mentality. I don't, I'm not going to say anything that's not from the word. That's my hope and that's my goal, right? But it very well may upset you. And in order for me to be found faithful, what must I do? Say the things that might make me unpopular. But everybody wants to be popular. And I say that seriously. You know it. No one wants to not be liked. But here I am as a mouthpiece of what the word says, and that makes me not liked by some people. And so I need your encouragement to say some people might not like that, but... I did because you were faithful. Now, it did hurt me, you know, but that's what we need, isn't it? We need the word. Do we need the word? Yes. We'll wrap it up, okay? Now, each one will receive his praise or commendation from God. That is true. The believer is judged, and we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. See, both of these things are true because God looks at the heart, doesn't he? Do I need to establish that in scripture? Had it in my notes. Do I need to go back through the scriptures and establish the fact for you that God looks at the heart? God does not judge as man judges, but he looks at the heart. Yeah, we know that, don't we? Okay. Now, the believer is not judged, but passes from, you can go back to that one, but passes from death to life. But in another sense, the believer is judged and we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Now, if you are a new believer, or if possibly you're a believer who has not properly been discipled, a lot of these things are new to you, a lot of these things are kind of intense to you, and you're not sure what to do with them, right? There are some realities here that we need to understand, and... Uh, what you should walk away understanding today about God's judgment is that he is very concerned not with externally your show, but God is concerned with the purposes and intentions of your heart. And if you think that God doesn't see, you have fooled yourself. If you don't know why you did something, God knows even though you don't know. That's amazing. These things are hidden in darkness. Who, who also cannot see them? You can't see them. You don't even know why you did that thing. But you fool yourself into thinking that you had good intentions. God sees the intentions of your heart. But you should also know, believer, maybe for those who do not know Christ, that there is judgment coming. For those who do not know Christ, they will be judged on the intentions of their hearts and on their sin, and they will receive wrath and punishment for that sin. However, if you have faith in Christ... All the wrath and punishment for your sin that you deserved has fallen on Jesus. He took that punishment in your place. It doesn't mean you are free from sin now, but you should still follow after obedience. Now, when we all stand before the judgment seat of God, what will we receive? This is when all is weighed and all is burned up, as Sam preached here a couple of weeks ago, right? And what is left in the end, the things that you will be rewarded for. Because if you think, as a believer, that you're going to stand before the judgment seat of God and he's going to hold you accountable so as to punish you for the sins that you committed, then you don't fully understand the gospel. 
because there is no longer any condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now and then. So what will we do at the judgment seat? We will receive our rewards for what we have done faithfully. Your homework is to read 1 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 13. Okay, just write that down. I was going to read it and make some comments. I've probably made enough comments for the day. But that's what I'd like for you to do. Okay, make, just make a note of that passage. And what I want you to know is that I was going to go into some detail about my desires for this church and what I want to do. And, and, uh, but it's okay. You go, go and read 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. And uh, just want you to know that this is my heart for my ministry and for you as well. Okay? Let me close in prayer. And we're going to sing one last song before we dismiss for the day. Okay? Let's pray.